Welcome to Medspectives, the podcast about health professionals, the stories of their practice, and their diverse perspectives into the world around us. I'm your host, Arvind Rajan, and on today's episode, we're joined by Aurora Schaefer. When I started Medspectives, I was focused kind of on only the health professionals themselves, but I'm beginning to realize just how important it is to understand how diverse health perspectives can really be coming from different people. Aurora is autistic and is also passionate about autism advocacy. I think she really presents a diverse health perspective that is universally known, but actually poorly understood. Throughout her childhood, she knew she was different, but despite going to multiple health professionals, she could never put a finger on exactly why. She interestingly only found out she was autistic in her sophomore year of high school. Aurora and I talk about her life and autism as a whole, some common misconceptions with it, and the shortcomings of society in accommodating autistics. We also talk about the controversy with certain autism advocacy organizations, as well as her own efforts to advocate through her role as the Vice President of the Autism Student Alliance, an autism advocacy organization for autistics by autistics. I really enjoyed having this conversation and I hope you enjoy it. Today I'm joined here with Aurora Schaefer. How are you doing today, Aurora? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm fine. I'm good. Um, thank you so much for your time today. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you because, you know, you're not technically a health professional, and that's kind of the traditional people that we usually interview on the show, but you have a really interesting perspective into medicine and one that I think is kind of overlooked a lot, you know, in mainstream media or talked about in the wrong ways, right? So as an autistic person, right, I think you know a lot about the struggles and, and the, the condition of autism itself that people kind of misunderstand. And I'm really excited to talk to you about what it really is and, and the struggles that are behind that and the, the problems that society has with, with like accommodating autistic people. Yeah, um, I think I want to start off by just generally explaining on like a very uh, broad conceptual level, a great way of understanding autism, but um, computer operating systems are a great way to explain autism. Um, you've got Windows, you have the iOS system. They're both valid operating systems. There's nothing inherently wrong with either one, but they work differently. Certain programs work on one, certain programs work on another, and they're two separate but yet valid operating systems. And the same is true for um, neurotypicals and neurodiverse people, which would include autistics. We just have a different operating system and societally, because it's different, it uh, gains this negative connotation that isn't necessarily true. Um, that being said, autism uh, has certain deficits and we have issues with certain things. Uh, but for the majority, for the most part, when you look um, very in-depthly on those issues, a lot of the challenges that we face aren't necessarily because we're autistic, but because society doesn't accommodate to those needs that we have. And those accommodations are put more on us to accommodate. Right. And I think you, you say this really well. You say, um, I define disability based on the social model, which believes that disabled people are not disabled by their condition, but instead by society's refusal to accommodate their needs and provide the necessary services. So it's not even like the disability that's the problem. It's that society isn't providing the important or the, the needed accommodations to provide for the autistic population. Yes, there's this just giant misconception that most autistic people want to be cured, which I mean, some do, and that's their decision. And they're allowed to think that, but most don't. 
um, having a different way of thinking. Um, it's not good or bad. It's just a different way of uh, operating. And we don't need to be cured. We just need certain accommodations in life and in the workplace. And we just work differently. Right. And talking about autism um, in general, we usually think of it, right, as the spectrum, right? We think of like autism on the, on, on a spectrum. And traditionally, like we think of it on like a, I guess, less to more, which is like you were saying, completely inaccurate, right? It's more of a, a bigger concept. Can you elaborate on, on, on that? Yeah. Well, the full name of, um, of it is autism spectrum disorder, which is uh, completely valid. Autism is a spectrum. Um, but by the time when it was invented, it, um, the meaning of it kind of got misinterpreted and has stayed that way over the years. People imagine it as this linear model that goes from uh, low functioning, more autistic to high functioning, less autistic, which uh, isn't true and is inherently discriminatory. Um, a lot of issues arise from um, believing the model works that way. A lot of um, low functioning people that are labeled low functioning their achievements and stuff like that are overlooked versus uh, people that are labeled high functioning. Um, a lot of their struggles are overlooked and they're unable to get the accommodations that they need and they develop um, imposter syndrome um, with disabilities. Um, I experienced that a lot as someone who was always labeled high functioning growing up and who wasn't diagnosed until much later in life. I definitely got to the point where I was like, I must be making this up. I, it just must be me. Um, but actually, the, um, the spectrum is a, um, if you look more into the autistic community, a lot of people believe in the color wheel um, idea. And it ha goes from the center to the outside of the circle, from more apparent, uh, less apparent to more apparent. And it divides it into slices based on autistic traits. We like to say traits instead of symptoms because symptoms more, uh, it adds to this uh, disease idea that autism isn't. So autistic traits, there's not really a standardized set for it, um, but specific traits could be things like communication, how you communicate your verbal ability, stemming, um, which I just want to explain really fast because a lot of people aren't familiar with that. Uh, stemming is short for self-stimulatory behavior. And that's where a lot of the autism stereotype comes from. Stimming is a way that we use to sometimes express our emotions or to cope with the overwhelming world around us. That could be anything from playing with a fidget spinner to rocking back and forth, uh, waving your arms in the air, anything like that. And it's just a very, very valuable coping tool that people sometimes just view as a behavior that needs to be eliminated. Um, so stimming could be a, um, a category uh, any physical or comorbid, comorbid conditions and just pra pragmatic disorder-based things, things like that. Right. And so when you're, uh, you're talking about diagnosis earlier, when you're, when you're diagnosed with autism, how does that diagnosis happen? Like, cause you know, like you said, there's multiple um, traits that are part of it. So how, how does that happen? Um, diagnosis can happen from a variety of different people. And I think I need to learn more about how other people are diagnosed. I was diagnosed in um, a different way, but I guess it's the more I'm reading it, it seems to be more common for most people. Um, I'm going to start back with my childhood because it goes um, over sure. a very yeah. long period of time. Um, I grew up and I always knew that I was different. My parents knew that I was different and they took me to all these doctors and nobody could really tell them what it was. 
I went to basically every professional you could have been to that would have diagnosed me as autistic and nobody caught it. I went to um, occupational therapy and went to speech language therapy. I went to other therapies I couldn't, I couldn't even name for you um, in elementary school. And I got diagnosed with sensory processing disorder, which um, some people with autism uh, have. And, uh, but that was, that was it. I went through elementary school, went through all these therapies and it just kind of stopped. And I had accommodations in school, but everything that I had accommodating was based on just testing that they did, that they found things, but they didn't label anything. And then I moved uh, through school. Everything was pretty, I mean, normal as it could be for me. I just always knew I was different and there was something about that. And I got into high school, freshman year went well, and then sophomore year just tanked. I went through this, I didn't know what at the time, but it's called an autistic burnout. And it's very, it was a very confusing time because it felt so awful, but also because I had no idea what was going on. It's this period of time that you experience um, from masking for a long period of time and just general exhaustion from living in a world that's not meant for me. I learned to mask from such an early age. Uh, masking is uh, covering up autistic traits and learning. Um, it's kind of like acting a role in a character. You create this new identity and from the, the people you see around you, you make this persona because you know that that's gonna fit in more and right. you're gonna be accepted more. So I had done that for so long that um, it had just caught up with me in high school and I couldn't do any more. I was exhausted, my grades slipped. I, it felt and appeared from the outside like depression, but I knew that I wasn't depressed. I didn't feel depressed. Right. And so I you were just, masking, like you were doing all these behaviors from a young age and you didn't even know like what it was called or you didn't even know. No. It yeah. just was kind of something that you just did, did to, to cope. And, and until your sophomore year of high school, you just kind of dealt with it by yourself. And then all of a sudden, like it finally, I guess, kind of hit, right? Yeah, and that happens with a lot of people because I masked before I even knew what masking was. I just knew I was different. And from what I had seen, I had internalized that and knew it was bad and tried, decided to cover up, which I know now isn't something that I need to do. But when you're a young child growing up and you just want to make friends and fit in, that's just what you do. And yeah, so in high school, I went through this major autistic burnout. I knew something was wrong. Mental health is very destigmatized in my family. It's something we talk about a lot. Um, so I told my parents, I was like, this isn't going well. Something is wrong. I need to go see a therapist. And we went and I went through talk therapy and then we realized I had a lot of social anxiety issues. So I moved into, um, a CBD therapy and I eventually went to go see a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist for everything just turned around when I met with the psychiatrist within like the first meeting of seeing me, she was like, you're autistic. And it was just a life changing experience for me. It's the biggest, most important memories of my life. It was just this magical moment of, um, as weird as it sounds, when I got diagnosed, I was like, I'm finally normal. Like right. I, there's this whole community of people that is just like me. Everything I experience, there's a reason for experiencing it. And everything's fine now. I had, I had the language to communicate my needs. That was a huge issue before. If I had all of these needs, but I didn't feel justified in asking for help because I didn't have a diagnosis. And now I have all the words to communicate that. Right. And that's, that's amazing. Like that all your life, like what you do, like 16 years about yeah. you went without knowing that. And then finally you're like, finally, now I know I was right all this time. I, I knew, you know, that I was different and now I can finally like feel, feel that way. Um, and 
that realization for you, was it like, a, I don't know, like what was your process in getting back into, I guess, getting back to yourself? Like, like you said, you were really burnt out your sophomore year and then you, you had this experience and you kind of felt um, finally like, you know, you knew yourself a little better. Um, so how was the process after that? Uh, well, after that, I ended up switching schools. I went to a full-time online school and uh, I got a lot of pushback from my therapist about it because, you know, therapists want to keep you in traditional school settings and develop that. But I think it was just honestly the best decision for me. It wasn't a year off, obviously, because I still did sports full time. I still did school online, but it was a year off of uh, the external stimuli that are just so not accommodating to autistic students in the public school system. And I spent that year um, doing school on my own schedule in my home and going to therapy and just really working on what I needed and figuring out the best coping mechanisms for me. And so a lot of that was uh, just reading up on, just connecting with the autistic community and learning the lingo and the language of how things are really helped me. Because before a lot of the exhaustion and issues I would run into would be because I was, I was told that, you know, they're I mean, I just got the impression that there wasn't anything wrong with me and I felt like I was making it up and I just need to try harder. That was my attitude my whole life. It was just, you just need to try harder. Right. And I learned that that's just not, that's just not reasonable. I need to work the way I work and that, that's it. Like there isn't any, you don't need to push yourself. It's only going to exacerbate any issues you have. Right. And so and I made the at- transition my senior year back into traditional public school and it was different, but I worked very hard on making sure that I did things the right way for me. And it was a good experience. That's great. And so that you would say that junior year of yours was kind of a, a time where you were able to get back to normal and get into a, into a space where, you know, you're comfortable, like going back into another environment where it's like, you know, an environment where, that originally had stressed you out. Now you have the, the skills and techniques in order to, I guess, like cope with, with something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. When you go through an autistic burnout, and a lot of people have it, um, like in their 30s or professionally, um, it's, it's interesting because it's not um, something you can work through. Like, it's very commonly agreed upon that when you go through an autistic burnout, like you're just exhausted, like there, there's nothing you can do. You just need to wait it out. And that's kind of what I did with my junior year. Right. And when you were reading, reading up on stuff, did you find like, you know, like mentors or people, you know, that kind of had gone through what you've gone through in, in the sense where like you, you know, you spent all these years of your life not knowing that you had um, autism. And then finally, you know, you knew, were there any other people that, that were in similar situations that kind of helped you with that process? Uh, definitely. I find that a significant portion of the um, autistic community, specifically on, on Instagram, is full of people who were diagnosed late like me and who have just such an interest in autism itself. Because, I mean, if you go so long, like I went 16 years without knowing anything, all of a sudden I have all this information. I'm super excited by it and I always want to talk about it. So that's a large portion of the community. And a lot of people, even um, like a lot of women and stuff, are diagnosed until like their 30s or their 40s. And that's very common as well. Right. And with that, I think you, you became an advocate, right, for, for autistic people and for the community as a whole. How has that been? And how, like, how did you get started on that? Um, I, in a very funny turn of events, one of the traits of being autistic is having special interests. Um, 
uh, well, in the autistic community, we call them special interests, just side commentary. In the medical community, it's called restricted interests, and it's a deficit. Um, that's just one of the many things that we have issue-wise with in terms of explaining autism. In the medical world, it's considered a deficit because you're very focused on a singular thing. In the autistic world, it's very celebrated to have a special interest, and it can be very beneficial because you can, um, a lot of times if you line up your special interest with your career path, you have a much higher quality of life and things like that. Um, my special interest is autism itself, uh, which is very funny, but um, I just, um, I've always been interested in the brain and how things work and autism is a whole nother level of that. And so it's just such a special interest for me that I, I, when you have a special interest, you have to do things with it. Like that's just like, I spend hours reading about it and talking about it. And it was just bound to happen for me to be more, um, to do more advocating and post more on Instagram. And I just knew going into college that if there wasn't an organization that was, um, advocating for autistics that was run by autistics, then I was going to start one. And right. I met friends on campus who felt the same way as me, and we started the organization, the Autistic Students Alliance. Right. And how has that been? Uh, it's been amazing. Um, just coming to campus, uh, there's, there are a lot of autism organizations on campus, but they are all service-based organizations run by neurotypical people for neurotypical, neurotypical people. And we just wanted a group that um, we meet together, we support each other, we, um, uh, we educate each other. We're foremost for autistic people, so we do career-based workshops and bring in professionals and things like that. But like me, a lot of um, the members are very passionate about educating other people about autism. So we um, do a lot of that as well. Right. And it's really interesting to hear about the, the, the idea of advocacy in general, right? Like, you know, you're doing really, really important advocacy, but then there's groups that aren't, you know, they're, they're in the name of autism, they're kind of advocating for the wrong thing. Um, and I think you've talked about this with, with the organization Autism Speaks, one of the largest in the U.S., I think, um, that work on autism and, and fund research and things like that. But they have a misconstrued goal, right? Like one that's not even supported by most, most autistics. Yes. I mean, I could talk about this forever, so I'll try to keep this shorter. Um, okay. Autism Speaks, I mean, whenever you say autism, that's the first thing people think of. I think of the puzzle piece and that blue color. And if you talk to anybody who's uh, an adult autistic, I guarantee you that they're going to tell you, please do not support this organization in any way. Um, autism Speaks, very ironically, does not speak really for autistic people because they don't involve autistic people in their board of directors, and they don't take the... Um, the consideration of, of autistic people to heart. I mean, one example, they, um, they put out a poll, a survey um, that was just nationwide last year asking, do autistic people prefer person first or identity first language? I don't remember the specific percentage, but um, it was definitely above 90% of people answered saying they preferred identity first language. And then Autism Speaks continued to use person first language and decided not That's, to transition. Wow. And do you mind um, explaining what those are for, for yeah, people that might not know? Um, Identity first language is when you claim your uh, disability, be it autism or any other disability really, as part of your identity. It means that just the same way you would claim like, I'm a woman, I'm American, I'm autistic. They're all part of your identity and there's no way that you can separate it from yourself. If you, and it would be saying things like, I am autistic, I am disabled. If you use person first language, it's saying that your identity or your disability is not part of 
how you identify. It's not part of you and it can be separated from who you are as a person. So that would be saying like person with autism uh, or person with a disability. And that's all about how you identify. But a lot of autistic people, the majority of us feel that autistic is an integral part of who we are as a person and that it just cannot be separated from that. Right. And I think sometimes like, I guess we assume the other way around. Like we think that um, person first is, I guess, is, is the proper way. But like, again, this is the problem with not getting the perspective like straight from the community, right? Because that talking to anyone, like you said, most or the majority um, believe in identity first, like you believe in that's, the, that's the best way to address. Um, and so that's, that's, that's really interesting to hear that they ran a poll and then they just completely kind of ignored it and then just did, did the opposite thing. Wow. And it's um, interesting because person first language, it was created with the best of intentions of not defining somebody by their disability. But in this day and age, we've outgrown that. We've realized that it's okay to define somebody as their disability because being disabled isn't a bad thing. And when you say it's bad to define somebody as a disability, you're making the disability more taboo and viewed as more negative than it is. Right. And so like it, it's traditionally stigmatized like with, with that term, but now we're kind of trying to accept it more. And I think that kind of lends into the term neurodiversity that you were talking about, right? The, mm-hmm. um, the concept where like it's, it's okay to have, you know, different, different wiring, I guess, or different ways of, of thinking. Do you want to talk a little bit about that concept and neurodiversity? Uh, yeah. So um, neurodiversity, big word, um, basically just means that your brain works anything that's not neurotypical, the typical working system. Neurodiversity includes autism, but you don't necessarily have to be autistic to be neurodiverse. You could um, be ADHD, uh, you have Tourette's, um, a multitude of different things. And it just, um, it goes on the premise of you don't have a disease. It's just a different operating system. Uh, kind of like what I explained with the um, computers earlier. Yeah. And I think that's something that, that isn't as, as accepted, right? It feels like maybe these, these organizations like Autism Speaks are funding research to, you know, like maybe change or not accept this concept of, of people being different like that. Yeah, a lot of the research out there, I recently did a research um, project on autism for an um, anatomy class on speech and hearing sciences. So it was more language-based, but I've read a lot of the research out there on autism, and it very much funding and everything is very centralized on finding a cure, which if you ask most autistic people, they will tell you straight up, it doesn't exist. There isn't a cure for autism, and we don't want one if there was. There isn't a cure because it's a different operating system and it's a multitude of genes and the way your brain is wired, there isn't a cure. And um, that's just how it is. And most of the research is done on focusing on uh, identifying it earlier on and a little bit scary, but identifying it before you're born, which goes into the whole eugenics side of it that a lot of autistic people are afraid of. If, If we're able to identify autism before you're born, I mean, they could yeah. eliminate an entire neurotype of people. Right. And then that, that's a whole nother ethical debate, right? That some people think yeah. like, oh, you know, it's, it's for, you know, the betterment of mankind. But then at the same time, like, it's not okay. Like, that's not what it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, so research funding typically goes to, I mean, very, very young children. You, it will be hard for you to find a research study of autistic people that uses people above the age of five. 
And that's just not, I mean, it just, it, it's very clear that the research that is being done is not being done to help autistic people. The research that should be done should be um, figuring out, um, working with autistic adults and people of all autistic, uh, autistic people of all ages and figuring out how to make better accommodations, doing research based on questions that autistic adults come up with. I have a multitude of like great research questions that I'd love answers to, but nobody wants to do studies on them. Right. And there's no funding to do those studies because all yeah. the money is with like autism speaks. Um, yeah. And it's, it's very concerning that people are, I don't know, so willing to, to fund an organization that isn't even taking like their community members interest in mind. And I mean, that's just, that's just really scary. Um, and the lack of science that Autistic Speaks believes in as well. I mean, um, we, we've all heard about it, the whole uh, vaccines cause right, autism. Yeah. I mean, the paper was that came out with it was disproved almost immediately. And yet people right. still talked about it. Autism Speaks didn't take, um, didn't formally announce that vaccines didn't cause autism until I believe the late 2000s. And they didn't take the, I, I believe 2016 might even be the years that it was. And they didn't take the idea of, um, they didn't take cure out of their um, kind of mission statement until 2016 as well. Wow. That was like four years ago. Oh my God. Yeah. Wow. With, with autism, right? When you first, you know, are diagnosed with it, what kind of therapies or things do you go through in order to become like, I guess, able to deal with, you know, the, the burnout that you're talking about and conditions like that um, more effectively? Like what kind of, things that things do therapies really target in order for you to be better at that? Well, I want to back up a little bit in terms of explaining. Um, I mean, everyone explains autism differently, but for me, um, it falls into two separate categories. There's um, the sensory category and then the communication category. And sometimes they overlap. So sensory wise, basically when you are autistic, you're living in a world where you perceive everything to one or another extreme. Um, I mean, just from the second you walk into a room, I can describe, like you walk in, I immediately notice, oh my God, there's people around me. I can see all the people. I can see what color everyone's wearing. I can hear the lights above me. I can see the lights above me glaring down. I can smell something in the next room. I can hear all of this. It's a very overwhelming feeling of everything is just always going at once. And it's very difficult to learn how to tune any of it out. And there are going, um, going into the therapy side of things for sensory stuff specifically, um, is a whole issue of our brains are wired to take in sensory stimuli this way. And it's a question of, can we really unwire it? And that becomes a whole nother debate of a lot of um, therapy like ABA, which is applied behavioral analysis, is the main autism labeled therapy, but it is not supported by most autistic adults because of the way it approaches treating autism. It treats autism like a behavioral condition when really it's a difference in wiring. Because what happens is with all of this overwhelming sensory stimuli, if you're a kid growing up and you feel all of this, you're going to feel overwhelmed scared and terrified and you're probably going to act out and like have a meltdown freak out start crying wave your arms all around try to stim to deal with the sensory stimuli around you and that's all that people see when you go to see a doctor they don't see how your brain interprets everything they just see this kid that looks like he's going crazy and 
it's hard for parents to deal with that in public. And the main goal is we need to make the kid not act this way, not and dealing kind of conform with the to society. Yeah. So ABA deals with, okay, we need the kid to stop stimming. So what it does is it takes away all of the child's coping mechanisms for dealing with how sensory stimuli are coming in. And that doesn't help. All it tells the child is, uh, we don't care how you feel with all the stimuli coming in. You just need to deal with it. And that's it. And you can't use any of these coping things that you usually use. And wow. that's, how a lot of autism therapy is approached and it, it sounds crazy it's like how does this still happen nowadays right it's because people don't talk about it um aba was originally invented by the same person who invented conversion therapy for gay people it was oh based gosh. on the exact same principles and um i can give my best guess as to why it's still in practice is because conversion therapy was done on people who were not disabled they fought it and moved on if you're doing ABA on typically young, young children who can't say no to anything, it's not going to ever become banned because they can't say anything. A three-year-old can't say this is abusive. Like, right. And so coming out of, it. coming out of a therapy like that, how are, like, how are these kids? Like, I feel like it's a completely, well, we're now in the day of age where most autistic people are the, like the first round of autistic people are entering adulthood and there are high, high levels of PTSD reported very high levels of PTSD reported of people going through these things. And it's very sad because this perpetuates a cycle of autistic people aren't listened to. The parents of newly diagnosed autistic kids don't get to hear those autistic adult voices saying, this is what I went through, this is what I would advise. When you're a parent and you just had an autistic child diagnosed, you're like rushed forward with all these recommendations from doctors saying you need to get your kid into ABA now. It's the only designated autism therapy and they don't know any better. They're doing the best they can. So then you start to question like, what should I do instead? A lot of people online ask like, if you don't support ABA, my child still needs some kind of support. What do I do? Um, occupational therapy is the route you go. And I went through occupational therapy. My mom and I often talk about how I wasn't diagnosed and there's, um, she talks about how she feels guilty sometimes about not knowing and not figuring out. And I tell her there's, nothing you could have done. You took me everywhere you could have done. And you even took me to the right therapy I would have gotten even if I was diagnosed. So that's another great side. Occupational therapy differs from applied behavioral analysis because it's based on client-centered therapy. And it's all about giving you a looking at skills that you need in your daily life that you deal with and helping you make the right adaptions to achieve those goals that you want to achieve. And it's very internalized, figuring out, helping you do things that you do in your everyday life. Right. So it's not, it's not rewiring anything or, or trying to. It's just trying to understand how those wires are. Yeah. And then I just covered the sensory stuff. Moving into uh, communication is a whole other side. People often talk about how um, autism is a communication disorder. Um, that can range from being nonverbal um, to just simple social cues and pragmatic language. Um, I've, uh, always been verbal, although during, um, uh, meltdown shutdowns or autistic burnouts, I will sometimes go semi-verbal, like I like to call, where it can be, um, I can't speak fully, but I can say yes or no. I can answer in short utterances, but beyond that, I can't do much communication. Um, and so a lot of autistic people will go to SLPs to learn more about pragmatic disorders or to learn more pragmatic language stuff like 
um, social cues, sarcasm, things like that. Um, we basically, what I like to describe is when you're autistic, communicating is like everyone else has this rule book, this magic rule book that they're born with, and you just don't have it. Like you just have mm -hmm. to figure it out as you go. It's like playing a video game where you have all the buttons, but you don't know what any of them do. And yeah, yeah so it's very much like I have to remember. Um, that's what makes communicating so difficult. When I'm communicating with somebody, I have to remember all of these things that other people don't get a second thought about. When I walk into a room, I have to be like, okay, this is how I position my body to show that I'm engaged in the conversation. I have to remember to make eye contact with people, even though it might be painful for me. Um, that's another thing, eye contact, it can be very distressing for people. I do what I call the facial sweep, if I just sweep the perimeter of somebody's face to right. like, make it look like I'm giving eye contact. And you just have to remember to do all these things that other people don't have to give a second focus to. Right, and I can imagine, especially having to do that before you even know you knew you had it, right? Like you were doing these things or, or trying to, you know, cope with it before you even had the treatment. And I think, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a thing that I really hope in the future, like we're not going to have to see, right? Something where like, we're going to be able to provide this kind of therapy for kids, like when, when they, you know, when they, when they see it. And I think that that really makes me think about the psychiatrist that, that said you had autism, right? Like in your sophomore year and I, I wonder why could that not have been caught at a younger age? Like I know every year we're required to do physicals to check on our general health, but is that physical even covering things that are important when you're not even taking into account something that, that affects you so dramatically um, and something that you definitely should know about? And I don't know, it just, it makes me question, like, are we really looking for the right things in kids as they're growing up or are we even like, paying attention to the, the conditions that, that, you know, that they're in. Yeah, it's a very difficult thing to consider. In a lot of ways, I don't, I don't blame any of the professionals that didn't catch it earlier on because mm -hmm. I recognize now that I masked so much as a child. So then you start to consider, well, why did I mask as a child? And uh, it's difficult to think about because, I mean, I feel that I grew up in a very accepting home and I don't think it came from anything home related. But I think we need to first address societally the judgment that we give people who act and communicate differently. I think that's the first thing you need to address. If people are treated to the point where they feel like they are different and need to conform and they mask, they're not probably going to get diagnosed. And I right. think also the criteria for diagnosing when you're autistic, I mean, I haven't read it over recently, but it's very... It, it talks about things that are very apparent. Autism is diagnosed from an external viewing of the behaviors you present. And a lot of people present these behaviors, but autistic, um, being autistic first and foremost is your brain working differently. And it's the way you perceive the world around you. And based on those perceptions, sometimes you exhibit behaviors as a result of them. And it's not viewed that way. So I think when you're doing diagnosis, uh, diagnosing somebody who might be autistic, need to focus less on the behaviors they're presenting and ask them meaningful questions about how their brain works and ask them specific questions about how they process things. If somebody had asked me things like that, like, are lights overwhelming for you? Like, I, as silly as it is, I was afraid to flush the toilet as a kid because it was such an overwhelming sound right. that just threw me off. And just there needs to be a change in the way we look at autism. It's not right. a behavioral thing it's just how your body and your mind works that sometimes creates behaviors 
right? Because you were saying earlier, it's it's diagnosed right now as observational, right? So like if the parent yeah. sees anything and, and it should shift into something that's just very casual with the, with the child themselves, like just asking easy questions like that. Because I feel like, you know, that those questions can really be asked in like a in like a 10 minute time frame at, at max and you can have really conclusive um, information just from that interaction, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is just such a, like a interesting field to talk about because of how big or how important it is, but how little it's talked about. Right. And it's a very yeah interesting concept because I've never met somebody who hadn't heard of autism, but everyone I talk to doesn't really know anything about it. It's right. this mythical phenomenon. Right. Like I remember in elementary school, like, you know, there was, there was one, um, or in, I think my, I want to say fifth grade class, like there was one autistic student and, you know, that he had like a, um, a special, like a teacher that came in and kind of like looked over him and kind of like a one-on-one thing. And looking back on it, I was like, you know, I wish like I had really, I guess, talked to him more. And I like, I just kind of accepted it. Right. I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. He's, he's autistic. And then, end of story that's kind of it like I didn't really like delve deeper into it and I think that's something that I think would be really cool to see pushed more I know there's a lot of programs nowadays like where they have um like pairings like during like gym class or whatever right like to make a better connection between you know neurotypical people and and autistic people and that relationship I think ultimately will be really important in 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 society because it will really dis- destigmatize, right? And it'll really e- enable these um, like autistic community to be accepted, you know? And, and yeah, I think like- when you're dealing with destigmatizing things and taboos, I mean, the best way to do it is when people are young and before they're set in their ways. Right. I definitely think, I mean, there's so much wrong with the American education system. So this is just one thing that needs to be addressed um, of just starting earlier on. Uh, I think people should be required to take courses in high school and maybe even earlier on about people, uh, disabled people, and it should be from the perspective of disabled people. And it should just be something that's talked about more and destigmatized earlier on. Right. And especially with advocacy, like there's a lot of very passionate people like yourself talking about, um, about autism. And I think we just need more people listening, right? I think that's... That is the whole issue. Um, it's just a very, autism is a very weird community because once you get plugged in to the autism community of people who are actually autistic, you realize there are so many people. And it's puzzling to see that all of the major um, like autism organizations don't include autistic people and they take up all of the listening space for people who are autistic. It's, it, it's very odd when you think about it, comparing it towards other um, minority groups too, because it just doesn't happen in a lot of different areas. Like how would we feel if the NAACP was run by a group of white people who said they had black friends? Everyone would be yeah. like, that's nuts. But somehow when it's autistic people, it's okay. People need to remind, remember that disabled people are their own form of minority it's not this weird separate category where they can't speak for themselves they can't and even if you're not verbal most people have aac devices and have other means of communication it's this idea of people with communication disorders can't communicate for themselves and it's not true 
Right. And it's, it's weird. Cause like big corporations might support autism speaks because they feel like it's like a philanthropical venture, right? They're like, Oh, we're supporting, you know, autistic people by supporting autism speaks. Um, and they can make a big deal about it. And I think you talked about Nickelodeon doing this and then yes. um, the, the whole shebang where they didn't even like, did they apologize? Did they end up apologizing? For that? No, no. What ended up happening with Nickelodeon, anybody who wasn't following it, and you, you know, most people weren't following it because autistic people raised a huge big deal about it and still we couldn't get any attention for it. Um, what happened was Nickelodeon partnered with Autism Speaks and um, uh, a lot of autistic people enjoy Nickelodeon for some reason. That's just the thing in the community. We all like, a lot of us like cartoons and things like that. And so they were very upset by it. And there was a lot of comments on the Instagram post and um, Nickelodeon ended up taking the post down and canceling the whole partnership with Autism Speaks because there was so much negative attention. But they didn't say anything. There was no comment made. There was no apology, nothing like that. And nobody really cared because it was a small community complaining. But what actually ended up happening, which was even more um, interesting, was we actually, um, the Autism Community got in contact with Nickelodeon UK. And Nickelodeon UK was very receptive to us. And their executives reached over to talk to Nickelodeon US. We had uh, minor influencers reach over. We had smaller news organizations reach over and nothing happened. They just didn't care. What? Wow. I, I thought you were about to tell me that they like, you know, they, they, they listened, no. but wow. They just didn't care. And that's the reality of it. Until more voices, uh, until more people listen to what the autistic community has to say, until we get more attention, none of the bigger corporations are going to care. It's all about money for them. As soon as we make it an issue of them not making money because more people are boycotting, it's not going to change. I can't, I can't imagine that like being such a big corporation and being so like, I guess, blind or like not even like completely ignorant, I guess, like, right. Like you're not even like considering. And it's not as point. if we, we know we were heard because they deleted everything right. because of yeah. the bad press, but just to not be acknowledge an entire community. That's insane. I think um, we'll take a little step back and talk about your life um, and how it was, you know, growing up and things. Are there any particular, I guess, anecdotes and stories? We love asking on Medspectives about yeah. like, you know, <laughs> stories and, and, and um, anecdotes that you've had in your life, because I think it really drives home whatever you're trying to talk about, because once we were able to make that connection, you know, like of, of seeing it in, real life I guess like that's that's the ultimate connection Are, was there anything you had growing up or any experiences that particularly stood out to you being autistic but not being diagnosed yet and not knowing that you were autistic oh uh, yeah so many I'm trying to think of a good example um I think most of it because I was always very focused on school growing up school was my main priority I'd always loved learning and that was where I had most of my issues of uh, when I was in middle school in particular I although I wasn't diagnosed I had taken a lot of psychoeducational tests that had determined that I had a need for extra time and I needed extra help with certain things and the evidence was there in the test there just wasn't any formal wording for it so I was awarded um, a 504 plan and um, I moved through middle school with that but what would happen was because I had all these accommodations and I was very interested in learning I would get straight A's constantly and in middle school it became an issue I would end up being called into the principal's office with my mom 
And she would tell me she's getting street aid. She does not need the accommodations. We need to take them all away. And just being like, just, I don't know, the idea that if a disabled person is making straight A's and succeeding, it means we need to take away their entire support system. I mean, I, I wanted to tell somebody, like, what do you think is going to happen when you take away my accommodations? I'm going to, I'm going to plummet. Not too well. Right. And, and that and, was. Yeah. It just didn't, didn't make much sense. Yeah. That doesn't make sense to me because I think that that means that the, the accommodation was, was working if you're making straight A's. Right. And, and the fact that they wanted to take that away. Um, another experience you might have had after you knew you had had autism, how was it, you know, coming back to school and how were people that um, you, you encountered, you know, interacting with you? Like, did, did you feel like it was different or anything? Did you feel, um, I don't know, like they, they treated you differently? Just, just anything like that? What's interesting about autism is, in a way... I mean, the autistic community and the LGBTQIA plus communities are very intertwined because a lot of autistic people have the option to come out as autistic and that kind of thing. And um, I had that option. I um, was diagnosed. I wasn't obligated to tell anybody. And so, I mean, nobody looked at me different because nobody knew outside of very, like over time as I got to know people and made new friends. Because I also, after I was diagnosed, went to a new school where I didn't know anybody. Mm -hmm. And so it was a whole experience of once I got to know somebody, I would explain it to them and explain it in the right way. And I never had any problems. I've never been outwardly discriminated against for being autistic. And I know I'm very lucky because most people experience that, but I did not really have to deal with that. Right. And, and talking about discrimination, just, I guess, just to, to understand the, the side too, did, did you talk to, you know, anyone that, that was like unjustly discriminated against because of this? Not at that point. When I was um, in school, honestly, I didn't know any autistic people personally, just from what I'd seen on Instagram posts online and stuff like that. I never really got close to other autistic people until I moved to um, ECU and finally interacted with more autistic people in person. Gotcha. Well, um, Aurora, thank you so much for your um, perspectives. I just, this was an amazing conversation. I think we really learned a lot. Um, about autism in general and, and the misconceptions about it. And I think, you know, this is information that needs to get out there, right? It needs to get out there to the people that support, you know, Autism Speaks to actually understand the, the truth behind it, right? And I, I um, want to quickly plug, um, if you're looking for other great organizations to support, you should support the um, uh, Autistic Self-Advocacy Network, ASAN. They are a, an organization nationally that is completely run by autistic people and do amazing work over 90 90 something percent of their proceeds go directly towards supporting autistic people that's awesome and do you know like how on size comparison like how much bigger like autism speaks is compared to to that organization like just a massively see, just right a massive level <laughs> Not, okay hopefully in the future we'll we'll, we'll fix that <laughs> one yeah. day but um awesome and and I, I really appreciate your, your advocacy um, that you do. And, you know, your post on Instagram really taught me a lot about, you know, how it is um, and, and this conversation as well. So definitely like, you know, keep that going. I think that's a very, very potent thing that you can do to, to fight these misconceptions. So again, thank you so much for being on the show. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we close out? Uh, 
No, just um, if you uh, want to get more involved, um, I'm Vice President of the Autistic Students Alliance. We started at ECU, but we're definitely fully digital and anybody can come to any of our meetings if you're interested. Our website is autisticstudentsalliance.com. Awesome. And did you want to just talk about like what you, you do in that organization real quick? Like, uh, um, sure. Um, we um, meet Wednesday, Wednesday nights, and we do a multitude of different presentations. Our current workshop series we're doing is on careers. We had an openly autistic professional panel the other night. Um, we've worked on um, just general advice for job interviews, since that's a whole other thing autistic people have to learn how to do with uh, resumes and things like that. Uh, I've done presentations on autism in the media and that portrayal just generally educating uh, neurotypicals on autistic culture and things like that. Very, a, a broad range of things that are always very interesting to listen in on. Well, thank you, Aura. Um, I'll let you go now. But again, thank you so much for, for coming out today. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation and thank you so much for listening. If you love Mitzvectives, be sure to follow us on Spotify, drop us a review on Apple Podcasts and share this podcast with your friends. It really helps us grow and I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much and I'll see you next Monday.